Hello, I'm Manila Chan. You are tuned into Modus Operandi. The so-called U.S. pivot to the Pacific is underway, but that term's actually kind of deceiving. While the general public attention is placed on Taiwan, there are quieter, more subtle moves being made in Asia to counter China. Today, we'll take a look at Mongolia, landlocked between two superpowers, China and Russia, who the U.S. has labeled enemies. Will Mongolia fold to Western pressure? We'll discuss it. All right, let's get into the MO. Thousands of years ago, Mongolia was the eastern military power dominating across the region, riding on horseback toward modern-day Europe. Genghis Khan led his so-called horde to conquer thousands and thousands of miles of territory forever, etching his name into world history. The Mongol Empire was once the largest contiguous land empire ever. But fast forward some millennia later, after a stint in the Soviet Union and then its eventual collapse in the early 1990s, Mongolia has largely remained out of international news. Until now. A country of only some four million people, most of whom live in abject poverty. The Prime Minister, Oyun Erdin Luvsanamasrai, made a trip to Washington, D.C. to meet with Vice President Kamala Harris, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and other Biden admin officials. Now, President Biden did not meet with the Mongolian PM, but that didn't change the reason for the trip. The Mongolian leader, signed his country up to be a member of the multilateral Open Skies Treaty that would make for mutual cooperation in airspace and commercial flights. So this all in hopes that the deal would help boost the country's economic position. But as the saying goes, the devil is in the details. Joining us to talk about this and the new attention uh, towards greater Asia We'll bring in a friend of the show. Alisher Kamidov, he's a political analyst and consultant based in Kyrgyzstan. He's got experience working with the UN and the World Bank. So Alisher, recently over the summer, the Prime Minister of Mongolia made a trip to Washington, D.C., where he signed onto the U.S. multilateral Open Skies Treaty, which the U.S. already has with 130 other countries. The treaty on its face purports to be about opening the sky to commercial and cargo flights between countries, which obviously would help increase trade. So while much of that is true, isn't it also true that open skies treaties come with permission for the U.S. to use Mongolia's skies for reconnaissance flights and vice versa? Manila, this is the case, actually. Open skies uh, treaties they're always tricky. And so there is a high possibility that uh, some countries that have those treaties can use uh, open space uh, for various purposes, in including reconnaissance missions. And that's precisely the reason why uh, Mongolia's neighbors, such as China and Russia, are concerned. They're deeply concerned. So China has been voicing its, its concerns that the U.S. is conducting reconnaissance missions uh, for, for, for years. And so um, 
And Russia, you know, as you as you know, now it's in the state of war. So Russia also made its concerns clear. So and there's no way Mongolia can assure that Open Skies Treaty will not be used by the U.S. to conduct uh, reconnaissance missions. It's very hard to establish that. So uh, at this point, we can say that the Open Skies Treaties, they are just open. And so uh, and those concerns by China and Russia uh, should be taken seriously, actually. So skeptics to this new collaboration, uh, which the American vice president described as just strengthening ties, the skeptics say this relationship is more about what the U.S. wants from Mongolia. Um, that would be, one, to drive a wedge between Mongolia and its neighbors to the north, Russia, and neighbors to the south, China, and then, two, to have access to, um, to procure or extract some of the vast mineral wealth in Mongolia, such as gold, copper, and other rare earth minerals, which are estimated to be valued at roughly three trillion U.S. dollars. Now, we should note that your own country, Kyrgyzstan, uh, has similar mineral wealth. Um, are the skeptics right, though, about Mongolia? Manila, skeptics uh, are right in this case. Uh, the thing is, uh, the United States makes no secret that it wants Mongolia to be on the side of the Western world in this geopolitical rivalry. And the thing is, over the past uh, several decades, starting from the 1990s, early 1990s, when Mongolia was able to shed uh, shackles from the Soviet Union, the United States has invested billions of dollars, a lot of efforts to make Mongolia a model democracy so that other neighbors, including countries in the Central Asia region, take uh, example from Mongolia. So the US has a vested interest. Uh, there were a number of events in Mongolia that uh, weakened democracy in the eyes of the US officials so, but now stakes are too high. And so the United States wants to keep Mongolia uh, as a country and it wants to keep its resources away from Russia and China and be used for Mongolia's prosperity. And it wants to remain a democracy and uh, be on the side of, of a democratic world. Uh, and of course, uh, Mongolia is in a very difficult situation, just like the Central Asian regions. It has deep ties with China, 90% of its uh, exports go to China. 90% of uh, Mongolia's uh, hydropower resources, oil, gas, come from Russia. So Mongolia is very dependent on those two powerful neighbors. But it also wants to preserve really good relations with the United States. Mongolia wants to keep that image as a, as a shining democracy on a hill in a very bad authoritarian neighborhood. And there are a lot of Mongolians who grew up with this uh, belief that they are different, that they are a nation that has glorious past. Uh, it, has, it has a nation of conquerors. And now uh, these people, this especially younger generation, it wants to be a uh, strong democracy and it wants to be like, like uh, connected to the Western world. But it's at the same time, they're cognizant that without Russia and China as a country, Mongolia will not survive. So it's a conundrum, Manila. Mongolian officials and ordinary citizens, they're finding themselves between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, they want to uh, use their resources to kind of to export them to the West, to the East. So they want to uh, preserve good relations with both of the worlds. But it's hard to sit on two chairs. And I think that the, these hard times are testing Mongolia's patience. Meanwhile, Mongolia agreed several years ago to the CMREC, 
the China-Mongolia-Russia Economic Corridor, what's dubbed Prairie Road. Now, for China, this falls under their BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, or what some might say the New Silk Road. That rail starts in China's Tianjin, goes through central Mongolia, and then north into Russia's Siberian quarter. So this will vastly improve Mongolia's import-export capabilities, given that it, you know, is a landlocked country. What is the attitude about initiatives such as this across that region? Well, the general attitude of the people in the region, including in Mongolia and the Central Asian countries, is highly positive. Any arrangement in which China and Russia are involved, it's a good news for Mongolian people and the Central Asian uh, populations. So there's a lot of enthusiasm. Mongolia is already part of numerous organizations involving China and Russia, uh, Shanghai Treaty Collaboration, ASEAN, score of others, World Trade Organization. So Mongolians, they love those uh, international, interpublic uh, organizations. And they also want, uh, they want their goods to be exported all over the world. But there's also some skepticism. Mongolia is a country of less than 4 million people. And there's a certain number of organizations where you can be effectively a member. You know, uh, these organizations, they carry a lot of obligations and they can tax resources as well as energy of the government, which is already strained by so many commitments and so many projects internally and externally. So the question on the minds of skeptics is this, can we pull this new initiative off? Do we have the resources? Do we have the stamina to carry it through? So, and Mongolians will realize that they are overstretched. Uh, so, but nobody can stand against any initiative where China is, is one of the, uh, uh, parties. So I think that there is p positive attitudes, enthusiasm, but there's also concerns. There's quiet concern. Yes, sanctions and the like. Now, we've seen the U.S. do this already all around the world. All right. Coming up next, Mongolia is stuck between a rock and a hard place. I'm referring to the SCO and NATO. We'll discuss it when we return with Alisher Kamidov. Sit tight. The MO will be right back. Welcome back to the MO. I'm Manila Chan. We are back with Alisher Kamidov. He is a geopolitical analyst based in Kyrgyzstan. Thank you for staying with us, Alisher. So let's talk more specifically about Mongolia's domestic circumstances. According to transparency.org, um, on the country's corruption perception index, Mongolia is ranked among some of the most corrupt countries in the world. There are only 64 other countries in the world with worse scores. What's driving that perception and what would help improve its ranking in the world? Manila, I'm from Kyrgyzstan, but in Kyrgyzstan, we closely observe, we watch what happens in Mongolia because what happens there will have strong repercussions for us. And we are developing along similar lines. So we, we both were post-communist states. We, both of these countries, they suffer from Soviet-era corrupt bureaucracies as well as uh, decrepit, uh, crumbling infrastructure. And just like Mongolia, Kyrgyzstan also has problems with these uh, powerful business elites that have strong ties to ruling establishments. So, but one thing about Mongolia is that it's a small country. 
And you would think that in a small country where population is less than three and a half million, there would be stronger oversight over government bureaucracy and institutions. But the reality is quite complex. Uh, we know that um, uh, Mongol officials, uh, they fight with corruption. They have all these initiatives. But at the same time, there are strong suspicions among people that there's a lot of corruption. The thing is, media in Mongolia, it claims that it's uh, open and all that, but uh, a lot of journalists, they use self-censorship because they're afraid of these business elites that control the government. So they use self-censorship. So without strong media, without strong watchdogs, uh, it's very hard to fight corruption. Most importantly, Mongolia's geography has a, a plays a role. It's a vast country. So if you go to Ulaanbaatar, the capital, it's just flourishing. Uh, it's just a lot of money in that uh, city. But outside Ulaanbaatar, in the regions, in all those rural areas, uh, the, the development that Ulaanbaatar has seen, it's not trickling down. And the reason is that traveling from Ulaanbaatar to those distant regions is quite problematic. The roads network are, networks are developing, but there's still many uh, kind of, uh, there's, there's need for, there's room for improvement. So when you have a vast country, it's, it's hard to travel to distant regions. So it's hard for officials in Ulaanbaatar to keep oversight over those bureaucrats in the region. So there's this geography. So, and then there is this role of history uh, as a communist country, formerly communist country, Mongolia inherited a lot of corrupt institutions, as well as uh, uh, government officials who are still in power. Soviet era officials, they still carry strong influence, although some young Democrats and reformers have come to power. So there is this uh, struggle for control over the country between young reformers and the old Soviet era nomenclature, uh, like uh, bureauc bureauc bureaucrats. So in some, it's a complex country. And so ordinary people, just like in the Central Asian region, have lost hope. Uh, there have been a number of uprisings, uh, revolutions. All of them were rooted in uh, high corruption in, in government. So um, business interests uh, that have ties to China, they also play a big role. And we know that uh, uh, China is not known for democratic control over, over its government. So Mongolia actually is under influence from China and there are all these business interests going back and forth. So the, some people, some skeptics believe the ties with uh, non-democracies explain the rise in corruption. But such concerns, uh, of course, they might be overstated. But generally, I think that there's this popular discontent over how the government is run. Now, as we mentioned before, Mongolia is landlocked between two superpowers, Russia and China. Um, they're members of the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. But they're also what's called a NATO partner, where they're not signatories or full members. Rather, they've signed a memorandum of cooperation with the bloc. Are the Mongolians hedging their bets here in terms of security? Um, do you foresee a time in the future that they might have to choose sides, one bloc over the other? Well, for one thing is that Mongolia has been under this pressure for centuries, Manila. Uh, as a country, it has been under influence of so many uh, large powers uh, since the time of Genghis Khan. And, and so even today, we see the strong rivalry and, and uh, Mongols, they've proven great diplomats and skillful negotiators. For now, they managed to keep this uh, geopolitical rivalry in control, and they've uh, played their cards well. 
but uh, things are getting harder and harder. And Mongolian officials, they've acknowledged how with this Western sanctions against Russia, things have become very difficult. So what we should keep in mind that Mongolia is not going to join NATO anytime soon. Uh, and this part partnership for peace or for some of the programs but, uh, where Mongolia is part of NATO, they're not full membership. They're not even close to them. So they provide Mongolia a chance to train their soldiers uh, along with some NATO troops, but nothing more, nothing less than that. And so and Mongolia is aware of that. And it's actually uh, showcasing the partnership with, with NATO as just a symbolic, uh, as a practical solution, which is not intended to weaken uh, Mongolia's ties, security ties with Russia or China. China and Russia come first when it comes to security uh, for Mongolia. And there's no way Mong Mongolians can choose other regions or countries over Russia and China. They will pay a big price. So in some, Mongolians, again, are playing this delicate game uh, and, and balancing game. And this is similar to what we in the Central Asia region, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan are doing. So we're closely watching Mongolia, how Mongolia is treating Russia, how it's treating China and the U.S. So, and we can learn a lot from Mongols' capacity to have good relations with all these large and small countries. According to a 2020 report by the World Bank, Mongolia's poverty rate remains stubbornly high. 28.4% of the country is considered impoverished. That's surviving on just under $2 per day. The next 15% of Mongolia's population is just barely above that poverty line, which means they can easily slip into the former group. So together, that is some 43.4% uh, of Mongolia's 3.5 million nationals, almost half the population who subsist on about $5 per day or less. Given the country's natural resources, I think this is a stark contrast. How can the government improve the living standards for its people? Well, the first step is actually to clean the government, to clean their acts. So officials, uh, which are now strongly tied to all these informal business elites, uh, they need to cut those ties. There's a conflict of interest going on. And so much of the development goes to Ulaanbaatar, as, as I've said, and um, while other regions, they are receiving short attention, insufficient attention from the central government. So the, in, another important step is to look at China. So China is like this powerhouse. In fact, much of the development that Mongolia has seen over the past several decades is thanks to China, China's investments in Mongolia, labor migration, of uh, Mongols into various parts of China. And, and so um, without China's uh, economic help, I think Mongolians uh, will not achieve a strong level of development. So, and number three is that without Russia, Mongolians, they won't make much progress, especially in the regions uh, of Mongolia, which border Russia. And so um, uh, investments from Russia in terms of oil and gas, uh, they are key to Mongolian economy. So. Um, but we should also keep in mind that Mongolian geography is, is a major hindrance to development. So uh, much of the land is pasture land. So, uh, and of course, there are a lot of resources, but extracting those resources requires high-tech equipment. Uh, you know, these trained uh, specialists, uh, really dedicated people who can work in harsh environments. You know, Mongolia suffers from this uh, condition called jute. It's like this cold 
really bad uh, weather that affects Mongolia in winter, millions of livestock dies because it's severe climate conditions. So it's a huge impact on, on the economy. So how can you withstand you know, like these such harsh climate conditions? So uh, there are a lot of uh, difficulties for Mongol government. And so um, Mongol government has been trying to meet those challenges by relying on uh, know-how from China as well as from Russia. And so in some, it's a complex uh, uh, question of how Mongolia can move forward. But there is a, already a team of uh, bureaucrats, officials trained in the West who were educated in China. I think that they know they, they have best, best answers to the questions of economic development. And so they are now struggling for influence. And I think that with these officials, uh, I think Mongolia is in good hands. So it sounds like there needs to be more focus on infrastructure in that country. Um, now, last, Alishir, as, as a cultural note, can you tell us a little bit about what type of structure that you're sitting in and what are you wearing? Manila, I'm actually now on the shores of Lake Isiko. 800 years ago or more, Genghis Khan and his horde of Mongol conquerors, they marched all the way from Mongolia through Isiko, Kyrgyzstan's modern territory, onwards to Europe on their conquest. So I'm sitting in a traditional Mongol gear. Uh, in Kyrgyzstan, we call it a yurt, and I'm wearing uh, a dill, actually. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Mongol traditional man's clothing. As you can see, it's really uh, thick. It keeps me warm. It's really cold now in this cool area. So uh, gears, they are amazing structures. They are like a round-shaped uh, wigwam-type tents. Uh, and so they keep people warm because they are surrounded by uh, felt. They're made of wood. They're highly mobile. That's what Mongol conqueror soldiers brought with them along the way. They would stay in these gears. And so it's really spacious as well. It can house uh, more than 20 people. So uh, it's, it's, we in Kyrgyzstan, we are proud of our Mongol ties. The thing is, I carry Mongol blood as well. Uh, my, my ancestors, they were Mongols, and I'm so proud of being connected to Mongolia through blood as well as through culture. Alisha Arkhamidov, political analyst and consultant based in Kyrgyzstan. His background experience working with the UN and World Bank. Thank you so much for your time and coming to us from the coolest structure that we have ever seen on this show so far. Thank you. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Modus Operandi, the show that digs deep into foreign policy and current affairs. I'm your host, Manila Chan. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you again next time to figure out the M.O.